0: The biggest misconception is that entrepreneurs are superheroes. They're not superheroes. How I built this is designed to try and demystify that because there's a process. What they did was they had an idea and they went through a sometimes painful process of realizing that idea and putting it out into the world. We've all had ideas, okay? I have ideas every day. And what the entrepreneurs on the show have and have had that enabled them to do this was exactly what you just described. Understand that when you hear no, it doesn't mean that there is a roadblock and you have to turn around. When you hear no, you got to figure out how to get around that no. Most of us, most people have a hard time with rejection. But if you can figure out how to withstand rejection time and again,
1: you will eventually succeed. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that. Hope you're having a great day because it's a great day to be alive. As you know, all days are. So if you're alive, and I think you are since you're listening, keep it going. Keep staying alive. Hey, that's a song. It's an old song from the 70s. Staying alive. Keep doing it. I am excited to share with you today an interview with a person named Guy Raz. Yes, that Guy Raz. He's the host of of the massive NPR show, How I Built This. And he's got a new book out, and it's called, guess what it's called? It's not called Guess What It's Called. I'm asking you to guess what it's called. It's called dot, 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 ellipse, dot, 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 How I Built This. That's what it's called. And it's a great companion piece to the show. If you like the show, you gotta read the book. It's a collection of stories behind the stories that he tells about entrepreneurs, about entrepreneurship, about the unique journeys each of these founders went on to create their companies and products that we now take for granted, whether it's the app Calendly, whether it's Spanx, whether it's Boston Beer from the mind of Jim Cook. Guy gets under the hoods of the stories and shares not just what they did, but what they were thinking while they did them, and it's a really great read. Now, I've known about Guy for a long time because he's been part of the NPR ecosystem, and I'm a long-time NPR fan and NPR listener. Even though I ask some probing questions that might sound like I'm not, I definitely am. And so I've known about him for a long time, but I didn't realize how big the guy was until I posted that I was reading his book on the social platform about books called Reads. Goodreads. It's where I keep track of all the books I'm reading, books I've read, and most importantly, the books I want to read so that I don't forget them. And I posted it on there, and not ten minutes later, I got this text from my little sister Claire, and it says, "This are you going to have Guy Raz on your podcast? Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. Yes, that's four question marks. I see on Goodreads you're reading his book, and typically when you put something on Goodreads, you're going to have them on your podcast. I need to know if you're really going to interview Guy Raz." Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Yes, I just got his book. Oh my gosh, I love that guy. We went to see him live. And it goes on from there. But those are the high points. So I didn't realize like the depth of passion that so many of his fans have. And as I did my research, I really found out that this is a guy that's created something about entrepreneurs, but in so doing, he is an entrepreneur himself. And while this show isn't really about entrepreneurship or business or fundraising or startups, I really find the journeys of these people and what motivates them to be super interesting. And Guy is very much included in that group because this show didn't exist, nor did the TED Radio Hour, which he also co-created. And it took vision, it took guts, it took overcoming fear, which we'll talk about, to turn it into a reality. Five years ago, he started the How I Built This Program or started pitching it. And today, it's getting over 4 million listeners per episode. And that's huge. That's gigantic. That's slightly more than what. Crazy money gets, but we're going to catch up to him. You and me, and the other three and a half million people that you're going to share this episode with. All right. Let me tell you a little bit more about Guy. In addition to how I built this, Guy is the co creator of TED Radio Hour and Why in the World, the first NPR podcast for kids. His programs reach over 14 million people every month in 2005 at the age of 25. Guy was made NPR's Berlin bureau chief, where he covered Eastern Europe and the Balkans. During his six years abroad, he reported from more than 40 countries, including the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Macedonia. For his reporting from Iraq, Raz was awarded both the Edward R. Murrow Award and the Daniel Shore Journalism Prize. His reporting has contributed to two DuPont Awards and one Peabody Award for NPR. Between 2004 and 2006, he left NPR to work in television as CNN's Jerusalem correspondent. In 2006, Guy returned to serve as a defense correspondent where he covered the Pentagon and the U.S. military. So in other words, this guy is not just interesting and a good storyteller. He's got legit journalistic chops, and he's got a really great mind that he's dedicating to telling stories. And we'll talk about that at the beginning of the interview. So for now, I say enjoy the rest of your day, and please enjoy this interview with Guy Raz. Guy Raz, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you for having me, Paul. Guy, you have a master's from Cambridge. You've served as the London and Berlin Bureau Chief for NPR, the Jerusalem Correspondent for CNN. You've won the Edward R. Murrow Award, the Daniel Shore Journalism Prize, and you've covered military conflicts in Kosovo, Macedonia, Iraq, and Afghanistan. So I have one question for you. (laughs) What's it like to know Terry Gross? I don't know her. You don't know it's Oh, my. No. <laughs> You've never met Terry Gross?
0: No, I've never met Terry Gross in 25 years in public radio. You know, she's in Philadelphia. I was in Washington, D.C. Now I'm in the Bay Area. I love her. I think she's incredible. I worship her. But yeah, I know.
1: Uh, yeah. Gosh. Yeah. My idols have fallen all of a sudden. <laughs> uh, I just.
0: Like, right, because you hear public radio and you think, oh, Terry Gross is going to have a potluck dinner tonight. She's going <laughs> to invite Guy Raz and Ira Glass and. Ari Shapiro is going to show up sure. and Adi Corners is going to come. Sure. And the reality is, you know, everyone's, especially remotely now, everyone's yeah, kind of. Yeah.
1: Doing you guys their own are in DC and Culver City and Philadelphia with her. Exactly. Talking yes. Jesse. That's to jazz. Let's make it about you. How old were you when you decided you wanted to tell stories for a living?
0: I was one of those kind of freaks, which is that I knew I wanted to be a journalist, really, I think already in high school. I was on the high school paper and then. I was in the college paper, and I, that's what I thought I would do. The reason why I was attracted to this profession, for two reasons. The first is, I felt like it was a way to communicate empathy. Now, I wasn't thinking that way when I was in high school and college. I'm reflecting now and realizing that's what I wanted to do. But I love the idea of being able to tell stories about one community that another community would hear, and it might change their perspective. And I was particularly interested even in college in one day going overseas Mm. and covering communities in conflict and seeing if there was something I could contribute. I knew I wasn't going to personally change the world. I wasn't going to win the Nobel prize, but in a small way, if there was a way I could tell stories about people and other people would hear those stories, was there a world where people would say, Hey, you know, Maybe the person, you know, over the wall over there on the other side of the tracks, maybe they're, they're actually a lot like me. And that was really the initial impetus, you know, for wanting to
1: be a journalist and wanting to tell stories. That's a pretty profound insight for a college student. Was there something that happened or was there a story you told early in your career that made you realize that was possible? I mean, I don't want to oversell my profundity
0: in college. Let, I'll be honest, I wasn't that profound. Um, but I think that I was very interested in world affairs. I mean, I grew up in a house, you know, where we always talked about the news. We, we got the Los Angeles Times every day. We watched 60 Minutes every Sunday night. We were engaged. You know, I was really interested in politics as a kid. I did a lot of volunteer work in politics as a kid. So I was always just engaged in committed to to knowing about the world around me and I was curious to experience it you know I was able to go overseas in college and live abroad and travel in in several countries you know with a backpack and a tent and a train ticket and those experiences really were the beginnings that kind of helped me to to realize that's what I wanted to do you know it wasn't one specific thing it was I think it was just a collection and a series of experiences, whether it was being in Eastern Europe, you know, in the years after the fall of the Soviet Union Mm. and meeting people who had never met somebody from the United States and who just 10 years earlier or five years earlier in that case, saw Western countries as the enemy. So that really began a kind of a, sparked kind of a, this desire and curiosity to see if, if I could somehow help close the gap between communities and people who didn't understand each other.
1: Mm. Your parents were immigrants and you mentioned in the book that you watched them hustle really hard throughout their careers to support you and your siblings. How did seeing how hard they work affect your worldview?
0: You know, I think that it's funny that, I mean, now, of course I do a show on entrepreneurship and many people think of me as sort of an entrepreneur. I don't know, action figure or something. I don't know. But, but, <laughs> but, you know, for most of my life, most of my early life and early career, I really wanted stability. You know, I wanted a job and I wanted um, a place to call my employer. And of course, I chose war correspondence and foreign reporting, not a very stable job. But, you know, watching my parents was, as a kid, I remember how hard it was for them to stand up their business. I mean, my dad, he had a very stable job working for a freight company in the 1970s and early 80s called Flying Tigers, which was eventually mm. bought by, by Federal Express. Right, And he was just unhappy there. He was in his early 40s. He had three kids, my two older sisters and me. And he wasn't fulfilled. He didn't, it wasn't enough to get him out of bed in the morning, that job. And I think He, you know, in his early 40s took a huge risk. He started a small jewelry store in Los Angeles selling pearls imported from Japan with my mother. They knew nothing about the industry. They started by buying, you know, customer lists and cold calling and going door to door in downtown LA and trying to see if they could drum up customers and going to trade shows and they were away a lot. And it was hard work and it was scary because there was no guarantee that you were going to get a paycheck. It wasn't like working for a company. And it was a number of years before they were really able to create a sustainable business that was able to support me and my sisters and then eventually my little brother when he was born. So I think that seeing that from a young age really scared me. You know, I thought that's crazy. That kind of risk-taking is crazy. I have a different perspective today, of course. Early in my life, I wanted nothing to do with business. I wanted precisely the opposite. I wanted a stable job working for a bigger company.
1: Where do you sit on the risk averse versus risk seeking continuum because war correspondent isn't entry level CPA at Joe's accounting firm.
0: It's not and that wasn't actually I mean I should be clear I didn't choose to be a war correspondent it kind of chose me. I mean I wanted to be I wanted to be a foreign correspondent and when I was 25 I was very lucky I got the opportunity to go to Berlin to be NPR's correspondent there. This is before 9-11. So my charge was to cover Eastern Europe. But very soon after I got there, a war broke out in Macedonia, and I was sent to cover it. And that was my entry into war reporting. I mean, I knew nothing about it. I went to Macedonia without any protection. I mean, I didn't even know about Kevlar Vests. You know, I didn't know about I had no experience with mortars or with gunfire. And I got there and I had a crash course in it. I mean, within (laughs) days, but you know, it was like a movie set. I didn't understand it at the beginning. I would go to a village and you would hear distant mortar fire. And it was an empty village. And I would walk around looking for people to interview. And then all of a sudden, like the translator that I found was like, get down, get down, get you know, and that kind of began progressively began this. And then 9-11 happened. And then, you know, all of us who were overseas became war reporters because we had to. We had to go to Afghanistan and to Iraq, and eventually I covered Israel, Palestine, and and so that was just. It was just the evolution of what I did. I didn't seek it out. I'm not a thrill seeker, and <laughs> I'm not. I'm not an adrenaline junkie. You know, I didn't want to go into conflict zones and and experience bombs or see people die or fear for my life. All the things I experienced, which I'm grateful for, but at the time, you know. I think what enabled me to do it was not courage, by the way. It was not that I'm courageous. It was that I had to do it. It was my job. My purpose was to tell the story. I was sent to Iraq, you know, and I spent over the course of three years, many, many, many months there, or to embed with a military unit and experience real fighting as an observer. My job was to serve as a witness, to Mm. bear witness, and to report that back to our audience. And it sounds very earnest. You know, I don't think I thought in my brain, I am here to serve the audience and to bear witness, but unconsciously I understood that. And that's what enabled me to do it. It didn't mean I wasn't scared. I was often very scared. I remember one particularly very scary gun battle in Najaf, Iraq in 2004, where it was never ending. I was in an armored personnel carrier for like eight hours and, you know, hot bullet, you know, shells coming into the inside of the APC because the gunner is just shooting and shooting and shooting. And you hear the sounds of rocket propelled grenades coming over you, just fear and terror that one is going to hit you and that, yeah. you know, hit that armored personnel carrier. So I've experienced that and I've experienced that fear, but I was able to do it because I had to, I had a mission. Yeah. My mission was to serve, to serve the public who listens to my reporting so from that perspective, I never I never saw myself as this like great risk taker or mm. this adrenaline junkie. It was it was what I did. It right. was what I did.
1: I once had a 6-hour layover at the Detroit airport, which was pretty traumatic. <laughs> never been a war correspondent though. So you said you were skeptical about business as a younger person. How did you come up with the idea for how I built this and make it yeah. a reality?
0: You know, I remembered in college I took a humanities course and we read a book by Joseph Campbell. And Joseph Campbell is this famous guy, sort of philosopher and writer, and he codified this idea of a hero's journey. He basically, his argument was, and I'm kind of butchering it, but his argument was that every classic story follows the same narrative arc. You know, whether it's stories in the Old Testament or the Odyssey or Gilgamesh or Harry Potter now and Star Wars, there's a hero, and the hero has some challenge some quest. And for whatever reason, they must go pursue it. They leave the village. People might doubt them. And several things happen along this journey. their are triumphs and tribulations and tests. You slay a dragon or you're almost killed by the dragon. You know, obviously, all this is metaphorical. But the point is, is that all great stories sort of go through elements of that narrative arc. And that's why we are attracted to the same story. I mean, think about a rom-com right? Every rom-com is the same story. Yep. You know, at the end, they're going to walk, you know, walk off into the sunset, holding hands, mm-hmm. or if not, it's going to be a different kind of happy ending. Sure. You, you know that, right? Yep. And the difference between one rom-com and the next rom-com is the writing or the jokes, right? But they're basically, it's the same story. And often it's Drew Barrymore in one of the roles in the, in in, in, the, in the rom-com. But I remember that class and I remember that idea. And, 12 years ago, I had an opportunity to take a sabbatical year as a journalist. I did a, a fellowship and I was able to take a class at Harvard Business School. I was stunned because the way they teach business school is through stories. It's called yes. the case study method. I've read a few. And I'm sitting there saying, wait a minute, all these people are coming here and
1: all they're doing is reading stories? <laughs> That's this right. is amazing. That's right. That's 150 grand worth of value every uh, year. year. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I'm thinking, this is incredible. So, I was really blown away by those stories, and it just kind of planted a seed in my mind that one day I could really tell these stories in a meaningful way with these founders because they're natural heroes' journeys. There's trials, there's tribulations, there's failure, there's despair, there's loss, there's crisis, there's jealousy, there's betrayal, uh, there's triumph. There's all all of these elements that you find in you know the Old Testament, right? There's drama, and that's really what kind of sort of the beginnings of this of the show it was, it was planted in my head and and then finally 4 years ago 5
1: years ago I started it, started to work on it I took the leap how did your NPR colleagues react when you pitched the show
0: you know i think initially and i think this is fair enough there was skepticism because look NPR is a mission oriented organization the raison d'etre of NPR is not to get ratings or to make money it is to serve the public with great content and great programs. And it is one of the great advantages of public radio. Mm-hmm. Like they can, you know, make a documentary about something that commercial media might not touch because it's too expensive or time consuming or might not get enough clicks or whatever. And public media does that, you know, they take those risks. And I think that initially this show in the minds of some of my colleagues felt too much like anything any other business show out there even though of course it's very different and I had to kind of make the case that this was going to be very different it's going to be an intimate journey into the lives of these people and it was ultimately going to be a show about vulnerability but look I needed that pushback Mm -hmm. I needed that pushback I think pushback is important on so many levels first of all it forces you to sharpen your case it forces you to sharpen your argument and it's also fuel to the fire right it's a motivator. It's like, all right, I'm going to prove you wrong. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to show you that this is actually going to work. And one of my biggest champions today, who is a wonderful a leader at NPR, she was skeptical at the beginning, but not because she didn't think it could work. It was just that she'd be convinced, and that's important. You know, that's really important. And I think that pushback can often be a really, really important factor when you're trying to start something Mm in any, anything, Mm -hmm. whether it's a business or trying to start something instead of a company
1: where you work. Do you think that the success of the show, four years, 15 million listeners per week, if I have the numbers right? It's not that many per week. It's close to 4 million a week, which is, you know, listen, we're really proud of that. So millions of people are enjoying this content. They're highly loyal. They keep coming back. They love the stories. Do you think that you've convinced anybody at NPR to think less negatively about capitalism. <laughs> people who
0: work at NPR are just, just to be clear, I don't work at NPR, but I work in partnership with NPR. Mm. It is one of the most committed, like amazing places. Like people aren't millionaires at NPR. You know right. what I mean? Like it is an organization of really committed people who are trying to inform the public and really mm trying to make the world a better place in their own small way. NPR's incredible business coverage and public radio does. I mean, Marketplace is one of the best and talking about capitalism, it's one of the best business shows full stop, you yeah, know, Yeah. I mean, and Planet Money is a show about the economy and business. I mean, these are phenomenal programs. I like the NPR public radio jokes and the Saturday Night Live jokes because they're funny, of course. But look, the reality is like when it comes down to brass tacks, public radio, the system and NPR as an organization, like the content that they put out is phenomenal. Like there's, forget about how I built this. Just anything that you turn on or the podcast or code switch. I mean, there's some incredible stuff out there, including great stuff about business and
1: and how to make money. I'm a huge NPR fan. I listen all the time. So I I didn't mean that disparagingly whatsoever. I (laughs) I just wanted to know if you'd converted people to the show as being something that would resonate with a very large listenership. Yes, for
0: sure. And, you know, we have huge supporters across the board. I mean, it's actually really great. My colleagues have been really wonderful there. And and yes, I think that there are lots of people inside who enjoy the show and probably secretly dream of starting their own side hustle,
1: (laughs) right? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So we live in a world, and every month it seems like the heat on this topic continues to increase. We live in a world that is increasingly unequal and where there's much cynicism and resentment toward the most successful people. Should someone who hasn't achieved as much as she has feel resentment toward Sarah Blakely for making millions of women feel more confident about how their genes fit? Look,
0: resentment is a challenging and tricky concept because, of course, you know you want to say, hey – Nobody should feel resentment toward anybody. But I think that, look, we're living at a time where, and by the way, Sarah Blakely is amazing. I've had her on the show and I talk about her in my book. Yep. And she's an incredible entrepreneur. So put Sarah aside for a moment. We're living at a time of incredible disparity in wealth, mm-hmm. right? That always happens. That's always happened. That happens around the world. I've lived around the world. You can go to Pakistan. There's in India. There's unbelievable wealth disparity. I think where we are today is... A lot of people, particularly in the United States, look at our country and they say, wait a minute, we're the richest country in the world with the highest GDP, biggest economy, all these resources, this amazing university system. And I can't even go see the doctor. I can't afford to see the doctor. You know what I mean? Or like, I can't pay for school. Like, Or I've got this massive debt from college and it's going to take me 40 years to pay it off. Meanwhile, that's not the same problem in other countries. And so I understand why there is a real deep desire in the United States today for real strong systemic change because people want the same opportunities to succeed and thrive like the entrepreneurs who've been on How I Built This. And look, most of the entrepreneurs on How I Built This didn't come for money. The vast majority didn't. And we really try hard to find people who don't come for money to make that point. But opportunity is still something that is not, easily available to everybody equally. To me, the idea of where we are today in the country is and where sort of the conversation is is going is not about the granular conversations about equity and and justice. Those are all obviously super important. It's a broader conversation around equality of opportunity. People in America who have been left behind are tired
1: of it. And I understand that. I understand a thousand percent. I agree with it. What is it about the entrepreneurs that you've talked to that have helped them overcome all the obstacles? And by the way, full disclosure, Sarah's a friend and our kids play together and they're good buddies. The point I'm just trying to illustrate here is that Sarah's selling copiers door to door in her mid to late twenties. Nobody forces her to start a company. She has an insight. She believes in it. She puts her own capital at risk. She works at night to make her vision a reality. What? trait does she have in common with the other successful entrepreneurs that have, with or without the access, have allowed them to succeed at just a ridiculous high level?
0: I'll tell you the trait she has in a sec, but first I want to address the idea of entrepreneurs as people who figured it out or were able to do something that that maybe people listening to this feel like they don't, they can't. The biggest misconception is that entrepreneurs are superheroes. They're not superheroes. How I built this is designed to try and demystify that because there's a process. What they did was they had an idea and they went through a sometimes painful process of realizing that idea and putting it out into the world. And I like to say that they're all Clark Kent's. We're all Clark Kent's. Mm. The difference between entrepreneurs and the rest of us is that they put on the cape. And they went to the phone booth and put on the cake. Right. Anyone listening to this, and you've had this happen to you, Paul, we've all had ideas, okay? I have ideas every day. Not every day, but oftentimes. And, and some of those are really good ideas. And some of those ideas I pursue and some of those I don't. Everybody has ideas. I, I don't know anyone in my life that hasn't said, you know, this could be a great business idea. What Sarah Blakely had And what the entrepreneurs on the show have and have had that enabled them to do this was exactly what you just described. Sarah went door to door and sold fax machines for three years. And for three years, she heard people say, no soliciting. I'm not interested. Please leave our premises. Security. Whatever they said, they'd slam the door in her face. Those three years gave her the thick skin To understand that when you hear no, it doesn't mean that there is a roadblock and you have to turn around. When you hear no, you got to figure out how to get around that no. Most of us, most people have a hard time with rejection. Most people don't like it. It's not validating. But if you can figure out how to withstand rejection time and again, you will eventually Succeed if you are trying to start a business. It's the same story with a guy named Tope Awatana. He's an Atlanta-based entrepreneur. He started a company called Calendly. Okay, Mm -hmm. Tope started out in college at the University of Georgia selling ADT home monitoring services to people door to door. Okay, and I said to him, I asked him, I said, "Didn't you just get tired of people saying, you know, get my property or I'm not interested?" And he said, "No, because I understood the concept of a hit rate. I learned this in college." That eventually, even if 100 people would say no, if I get one every 100 doors, that was still more commission money. It was500 dollars. That was more money than I had ever seen in my life. And so I was okay with people saying, no, it didn't bother me. You know, that experience of being a door-to-door salesman or being exposed to rejection over and over again actually creates the ability to feel more resilient when you actually start your business and people will actually say no, investors will say no, the stores that you want to sell your products and will say no. But the people on, uh, on how I built this, they knew that going in, they knew they're going to hear a lot of no's, but yeah. that didn't stop them. And that's the only difference. And I believe there's a learned skill.
1: Sarah Blakely learned that skill. She couldn't even get anybody to make her garments. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> she couldn't she had everybody pay saying people no, but, to make but, her but, garments. But she knew that, She'd already
0: heard no selling fax machines for three years. That's right. So when she went to North Carolina to all those textile mills and they all said no, she knew that that wasn't the end of the road. She knew that eventually one was going to say yes.
1: Okay, let's talk about people that come from the other side of things. Jim Cook of Boston Beer had a B.A., J.D. and an MBA from Harvard. He was making hundreds of thousands of dollars in the early 80s as a consultant at BCG. But he threw that job in the toilet to make Sam Adams full time. What's the line between chasing one's dream and downright foolishness? I think there's a myth about entrepreneurs that they're these kamikazes,
0: that they jump out of airplanes without a parachute, that they're crazy, brash risk takers. There are some entrepreneurs like that. They have not been on how I built this, okay? Because, <laughs> because I don't actually think most entrepreneurs are like that. Mm. You know, even Richard Branson, I think that most entrepreneurs take mitigated risks, right? Most of us take mitigated risks. So here's an example Jim Cook, right? He's got this very stable job at BCG. It's the same story, by the way, the same exact story that my dad experienced. My dad had a stable job working for a freight company. Jim Cook is in his mid 30s, he wakes up in his mid thirties. And he says, I'm miserable doing this. Yes. I'm making a lot of money. Yes. I'm on the fast track to partnership. Yes. I'm going to have financial stability, but I hate this job. I'm not happy anymore. My brain isn't working anymore. If you were making a million dollars a year, let's say, maybe you are doing your job, doing this podcast. Okay. Couple million, but yeah. couple million, let's say, couple million. but you hated it. You just, you hated it. You hated everything about it. You wouldn't be able to do it. It would be very hard. You wouldn't be able to sustain it after a while. And that was Jim Cook's situation. He wasn't making millions. He was making a good salary, but he couldn't do it anymore. He had to figure it out. And he determined, and he has this amazing concept. It's it's called dangerous versus scary. He determined that if he would leave Boston Consulting Group to start a beer company, which, by the way, he didn't know much about. He's a fourth-generation beer brewer, but he still had to do his homework. It would be scary. It was really scary, leaving that great job. But if he stayed and those golden handcuffs got tighter and he woke up one day at age 65 and missed his chance to start something, that would be dangerous because he would have lived a life of regret. And the point of this is that there are lots of things that are scary that are not dangerous. And there are a lot of things that are actually dangerous but not scary. And in many cases, staying in your stable, comfortable job is not scary. It's not scary at all, but it might be dangerous. And so in almost every case that I've had on How I Built This, the people who come on the show in a variation of that theme take that scary option. But most of them still have a fallback plan. Sarah Blakely, she could have gone back to being a sales rep. Jim Cook could have gone back to BCG if it didn't work out, to Boston Consulting Group. Seth Goldman, who started Honest Tea, he left a finance firm and he really didn't want to do that job. But he knew that if Honest Tea didn't work out, he would go back. He could go find another job in finance. So, you know, and it applies to people working in supply chain or in healthcare, whatever whatever job, you know, you're doing, there's always a fallback plan. You know, you don't have to like take your life savings and blow it all on this thing that you think is going to change the world. There are other ways to do it carefully and mitigated in a mitigated way, but it's important to understand that if you take no risk, there's no reward. You have to take some risk to do something that you love and to do something meaningful.
1: Yeah. No, I've been through that personal calculus myself. So yeah. A couple of months ago, I interviewed a guy named Rabbi Daniel Lappin. He argued that money was holy because the only way you can make it on an ongoing basis is by pleasing another child of God. Now, putting it another way and taking the religion out of it, can entrepreneurs be successful without solving other people's tangible problems? I don't believe so.
0: I think that the fundamental value proposition is, what problem are you solving? or what service? And how are you doing that through a product or service? And it doesn't necessarily mean, are you completely reinventing the wheel? But it could mean that you might be improving something. You know, here's an example. I interviewed Peter Rayhall. he started RX Bar. When he started RX Bar, there were 2000 energy bars in the market, okay, in 2008, 2009. Like, anybody with any sense would say, why are you starting an energy bar? Because who's gonna, there are 2000 energy bars, like, how are you and your parents' basement that can differentiate this? That's right. You should start a podcast. You start a podcast because there are a million <laughs> podcasts. And what he did was he solved a problem for a niche community, but a significant community. And that was a community of CrossFitters. This was when CrossFit was really starting to blow up. Peter was a CrossFitter. He knew that many CrossFitters ate a paleo diet. It's a very challenging diet. I've tried it. It's really hard to keep going. It's basically meat and vegetables, but like no dairy, no sugar, no oils, no beans, no legumes, no grains. So you can't even get protein from beans. So he knew that virtually all these bars, energy bars for people doing CrossFit weren't working. You know, a lot of these CrossFitters were like bringing cooked meat, you know, to the, <laughs> to the gym with them. Right. So he comes up with this concept of an energy bar that's basically made with all of these things that CrossFitters could eat. Paleo people could eat dates, date sugars allowed as a sweetener. Nuts are allowed. Eggs are allowed. That's protein. And there you go. That's how he started it. He started making them in his parents' basement and he would bring them to CrossFit gyms and Tupperware dishes and say, Hey, this is paleo friendly. That's solving a problem, not just for him, but for a lot of other people initially a niche group, which grew into something much, much bigger, eventually sold to Kellogg's for $700 million. I believe that to create something of value that's sustainable, it has to solve a problem. And by the way, it doesn't have to be our bar, it can be an HVAC company in a community that doesn't have an HVAC, or it can be, you know, an HVAC company that offers a better service. But it is solving a problem, which is people in the community don't like the HVAC company there, they need a new one. Or they don't like the local food store. They want better options. That's solving a
1: problem. You know, talking about bringing cooked meat to the gym just gave me a great idea. It's called Satchel o mutton. What do Mm. you think? You, You like that? That sounds delicious. Okay. That sounds really good. You taught journalism at Princeton and George Washington University. If you could have your students take just one thing away from your class, what would it be?
0: To take one thing away from the class, I think, you know... I would say that anything worth doing involves friction. That's okay. That if it's important, it's probably going to create friction and it's probably going to create some type of challenge. And that's it's okay. That's important. If it's not disruptive in some way, then it might not be worth doing. And that, that word is, by the way, is, is overused quite a bit. And when I say disruptive, I mean, it doesn't mean like a tsunami of change. It could be a small disruption. Mm-hmm. I think that anything really, truly worth doing is going to be hard. Embrace the hardship. you know, Embrace it because it means it's worth doing. That's the advice that I would give them.
1: Is that pushback that you got when you started How I Built This an example of the kind of friction you're referring to?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of friction that I've had with all of the things that I've started. I've got a children's show and we had friction, not me and my partners, but, you know, trying to kind of find a distribution partner for that show and almost anything that I've tried to do in my career that brought about some kind of change or that a process or system or was always full of friction. And I think I've learned over time that that's really healthy, that if you have a product or concept. And there's no friction. Everyone is just throwing money at you and saying, "This is great. This is going to be amazing. This is going to be world changing." You're going to be left with Quibi, okay? <laughs> You're going to be left with a right. Well, think about it. You've got two superstars, superstars uh, Meg Whitman and and Jeff Katzenberg. They raise a billion point four dollars, one point four billion dollars, because everyone wants to throw money at this. Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg. Well, no one is questioning whether this thing is actually going to work. Now, I might be wrong. We might be listening to this in 10 years and everyone will say, you said Quibi was... And look at, look at Quibi now. But mm-hmm. the point is, is that I don't believe that they faced a whole lot of friction in getting this off the ground. They were so well-connected. They had so much money. And
1: I don't think that was good for Quibi. Well, along the lines of friction, I bet you know what my last question is going to be. I don't know. <laughs> to what degree... A very brilliant person does this, so I'm Channeling brilliance here, okay. All right. So, okay. to what degree do you attribute your success to luck versus hard work? Ah, okay. The last question I ask on the show, and, and oh, yeah, that's in you. That's you who does that. Right. I, <laughs>
0: uh, I wouldn't call him brilliant, but yes, that's me. It's one of the chapters in the book too. So, look, I don't ask that question to hear the specific granular answer necessarily. It's more an opportunity to kind of reflect on that person's journey. And I'm I'm usually asking that question after you know two hours of a conversation. I'm a big believer in, in my case, in luck. I think that I was lucky to be born in circumstances in a family where I was supportive. I think lots of children don't have that luck. And I was extremely lucky to meet my wife who 20 years ago, randomly at a barbecue, I didn't know her. I didn't know she would be there. I didn't know who she knew there just met her and and was lucky that she showed up to a party the next weekend and was lucky that she stayed with me even when I went overseas for 3 years and in our early 20s and without her I wouldn't have a sounding board I wouldn't have the person who's been the most important and supportive person in my life who's helped me think creatively about what I do and how to make them better so I mean she's kind of the foundation of what I believe I've been able to do because you know having a partner in life in my case, has been transformational. I, I don't think I would be doing these shows without her. So, so that was lucky. I was lucky that I met her. I was really lucky. That was a, the luckiest day of my life.
1: Yeah. No, I think it's a brilliant question because uh, just an awareness of where success or failure comes from is a really good place to start in all of our lives. And it's something to keep in mind, you know, as we work hard toward trying to do the best work we can do. Where can our listeners find out more about you and locate your book? You can find out more about me at
0: GuyRaz.com. That's G-U-Y-R-A-Z.com. The book is available everywhere books are sold at Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com. And if you order the book, I think if you order the, we might still have some left. If you go to GuyRaz.com, if you order the book very quickly, I hope there's still some left, (laughs) um, I will send you a signed book plate
1: if you sign up for it there, yeah. All right. Awesome. Hey, Guy, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. And best of luck with the book and the show going forward. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much, Guy. I greatly appreciate you including crazy money in your media blitz to help sell the book. Folks, if you are interested in entrepreneurship or you just like good stories about the brands and the companies that you've come to know and trust, by all means, check out both the podcast and the new book, How I Built This. There's links to Guy's website in our show notes, so click down there and get yourself a copy of the new book. By the way, I wanna acknowledge that I'm still learning 80 episodes in. Hey, this is episode number 80. I'm super proud of the fact that we're still doing this and that we've had incredible guests, none better than Guy. But I want to acknowledge that I probably spent a little bit too much time pushing him on the NPR attitude toward business and about inequality in the world. And we could have spent a little bit more time talking about the stories he shares in his book. But he was very gracious about it, and I thank him for that. And I'll come back to that in just a second in the takeaways. First takeaway is this, dangerous versus scary. This is a really important concept. Because if we treat all scary things as if they're dangerous, we're never going to take the big chances in our life that are going to lead to our biggest successes or at least learning experiences through failure. And I thought it was really interesting to hear that from Jim Cook, who was making incredible amounts of money in the early 80s in the corporate world, but just didn't feel like he was doing what he was supposed to be doing. And if he had treated the scary prospect of starting his own brewery as if it were dangerous, the entire beer industry in the United States would look different today. I do think it would. The success of Boston Beer and Sam Adams catalyzed the microbrewing industry. And thanks to that, we all have much better beer all over the country. So thanks for the beer, Mr. Dangerous versus Scary. Secondly, entrepreneurship doesn't just look like two tech bros in a garage in Palo Alto. It's men and women, old and young, across the country, in a variety of industries. And what I was saying earlier about, I spent too much time on the questions of inequality. One of the questions I wanted to ask him was to elaborate on the story of the business called Chicken Salad Chick, which is a chain of restaurants around the Southeast that sells, yes, chicken salad. It was started by a woman in Auburn, Alabama, who started selling chicken salad because she couldn't pay her rent. She wasn't thinking about making millions of dollars. She was thinking about how to get the landlord their rent next month. And he goes on to tell this story that is highly emotional and highly inspiring. And the stories that he shares in the book helps us understand that entrepreneurship isn't what we typically think of, 22-year-old dudes wearing hoodies out in California, disrupting the, whatever, restaurant delivery game. All right, lastly, One of the last chapters of his book is called Be Kind, and I think that's a huge lesson for all of us. All the entrepreneurs he talked to, he said, were, for the most part, unfailingly kind and polite and respectful and appreciative. And Guy, in speaking with me today, was equally gracious, and I truly appreciate that. All right, so those are the takeaways. Dangerous versus scary. Entrepreneurship. Be kind. Folks, if you enjoy what we're doing here at Crazy Money, sure would appreciate it if you take a minute to rate and write a review of the podcast. The number of ratings, the number of reviews, positive reviews we have help increase our visibility inside the apps where you find Crazy Money. Bigger audiences means I'll be able to get better guests to create a better program for you. You can go to ratethispodcast.com slash money, or you can click the link in the show notes. It'll walk you through how to write a review for the app you're listening to now. I'd love to hear from you. If you have feedback, suggestions for guests, or just want to say hi, you can reach me at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. Sure would appreciate hearing from you. If you have an opportunity, share this podcast with three of your friends who you think would enjoy it. That is it for this week. We've got more great shows coming out next week. I got Jennifer Risher, whose new book, We Need to Talk, A Memoir About Wealth is a really interesting read, and the week after that I've got Apollo Ono, eight-time Olympic gold medalist, so stay tuned, come back next week, in the meantime, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.